This editorially independent episode of New Retina Radio is supported by Alamera, a global pharmaceutical company whose mission is to be invaluable to patients, physicians, and partners concerned with retinal health and maintaining better vision longer. Alamera. We see more together. Welcome to New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation, a new Retina Radio miniseries. My name is John Kitchens, and I practice at Retina Associates of Kentucky. On this miniseries, we'll examine management strategies for one of the most confounding and frustrating complications we encounter as retina specialists. I'm talking about postoperative inflammation. On this episode, we will focus on the initial encounter with postoperative inflammation. We'll see how experts in the field examine patients and evaluate patients and what their choices and options are. Luckily, we have two such experts here today. We have Lisa Faya from Associated Retina Consultants in Royal Oak, Michigan. Hey, Lisa. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you. And we have Daniel Kiernan, who is from the Eye Associates in Sarasota, Florida. Hello, Daniel. Hey, John. Great to be here with my amazing co-host, Lisa. Fantastic. <laughs> it's so great to have both you guys on here. And, you know, this is something that we don't face as commonly in clinic, but it's post-operative inflammation. And uh, we're going to focus on it more in the retina context. So not really post-cataract inflammation, but what I perceive as being kind of one of the more difficult things to treat, and that's the post-vitreal retinal surgery patient with inflammation. Um, Lisa, when do you encounter a patient like this? What's the typical type of surgery? Uh, what's the time frame? Does it pre present like post-op CME from the cataract standpoint? I mean, for from the retina standpoint, it seems a little more insidious. Like it's usually they've had a detachment, they're doing well, they develop the ERM. Oh, okay, let's go back, let's go and peel this, and then we peel it, and they're like, "You said the distortion was going to be better," and they still like. Yeah, it's better, but things are still a little minimized. There's still the distortion. And, uh, you know, that doesn't look like, that picture doesn't look like the back of my other eye. Like, what's what's going on with this? We've been on drops for so long. My, it's bothering my eyes. When, when am I going to get better? That's that kind of thing. And I would say, you know, it's like, they kind of give you those first two months as a little leeway. And even when you have to tell them they have the second surgery, they're like, okay, well, you told me this might happen. But at three months, they're kind of getting tired of it. And they uh, they want something different. And that's very reasonable to me. And Dan, when you first evaluate these patients, you know, what, what is a real key thing? OCT, fluorescein angiogram, uh, what are the common ways that you evaluate a patient with this presentation? Right. Um, well, obviously they're presenting with uh, usually a symptomatology such as decreased vision or metamorphopsia with distortion. And although exam is very important, I still use fluorescein, especially to establish a baseline and to look for more insidious post-op inflammatory signs like disc and macular leakage. By far and away, OCT is, uh, you know, the gold standard for diagnosing, especially macular edema associated with uh, post-op inflammation. And I use that on every patient, every time it comes into my clinic and every follow-up, no matter what the treatment modality might be. And so when these people first or these patients first present to you, Dan, 
Um, what, what is your first steps in therapy for, uh, for a patient like this? Well, I, I do want to quickly review their records and see what kind of surgery they had and when, because if it's more of an acute process, which, you know, you more commonly see after cataract surgery and the setting of, say, Irvine gas syndrome, a lot of times topical therapy, even just tincture of time will suffice. But these patients that we're really talking about, Lisa alluded to that, you know, chronic retinal detachment patient who's maybe had one or more surgeries, including you know, prior cataract surgery, uh, they've got this more chronic cystoid uh, changes that uh, they're affecting their macula. They're probably going to be a lot more fluid and a lot harder to treat. So uh, although I oftentimes will say to the patient, let's restart those drops. Do you still have anything left over from months, years ago? I think every patient is more comfortable doing that than rather going straight to something more aggressive like an intravitreal injection, but not always. There's a lot of fluid, and especially if they're being treated for something else, they've already experienced intravitreal injection. I, I have no qualms against starting them off with an intravitreal steroid. So Lisa, let me back up just a second though. First and say, are there any things intraoperative that we do or could avoid that could reduce the chances that these patients develop a uh, uh, post-operative cystoid macular edema? I mean, the biggest thing is to assess the systemically their comorbidities, right? You know, um, how is their blood pressure doing? Uh, how is their, are they diabetic? How, how are their blood sugars doing? You know, my favorite is when I tell a patient, so are your, is your blood pressure okay? Your blood sugar? Oh, it's fine. When's the last time you saw your primary care doctor? Oh, it was about five years ago. Well, I guess if you don't know, you don't you don't get the diagnosis. So sometimes uh, just asking those simple questions, I tell my fellows that like, they say it's fine, but if they haven't been there for a while, that's kind of the thing. So interoperatively, I like to know, uh, or beforehand actually, you know, what's going on with that. And I'll look and I'll see, okay, there's a lot of Doppler hemorrhages and they say there's everything's fine. So those kind of things, you know, I don't know how much I would change. Like if you have to peel a membrane, you have to peel a membrane and that's just the way it is. You know, I don't think peeling less extensively will give you less inflammation. But for me personally, if it seems like, again, their postoperative course has been a more, more complicated, I'm more likely to even possibly do a, an injection or a subtenons injection uh, in those patients, or maybe even an anti-VEGF if they're like, yeah, my blood sugars have been bad, but I can't, I can't deal with this eyeball anymore. So from an interocular standpoint, I know about not doing things, but definitely things that I might supplement ahead of time before I, or having my brain before I even take the patient to the OR. You know, I can think of one situation and you guys might encounter this, hopefully you don't, uh, but it's when I've ever, I've had subretinal PFO. That seems to be something that is just so seemingly pro-inflammatory that even once you get that subretinal PFO out, it seems like those patients develop a, a whopping case of CME that is really recalcitrant to just our standard treatments. Do you ever have any experience with that? And if so, what are your keys? Well, the subretinal PFO, I think we've all had to deal with at some point in our careers. And uh, fortunately, I haven't had that in many years, <clears throat> other than very small bubbles that were non-central non part of the retina. Um, but I agree, any any sort of remnant like that left in the eye can cause, uh, you know, someone to be predisposed to post-operative inflammation, CME. Um, one, one other uh, thing we can consider, and I've used before, is surgical adjuvants, uh, such as intercameral uh, dexamethasone or DEXEQ. Uh, unfortunately, that's lost its pass-through status, so it's been kind of sidelined for the moment. Um, but I do still use uh, intracanalicular dex, uh, dexamethasone or dextenza. I, I've used that today. What's nice about that is it actually provides a continuous dose 
steroid anti-inflammatory effect uh, over the next few weeks after surgery, irregardless of whether the patient's uh, prescribed or is compliant with topical uh, anti-inflammatories. So I think those may predispose the patient to have less likely a chance of getting CME, although that's still you know somewhat debatable. Um, I've presented a couple uh, podium presentations on that, but I think just we want to make sure our patients are adequately treated in the immediate acute post-operative period with a sufficient anti-inflammatory uh, treatment, or if they're undertreated, they're probably going to be more likely to get uh, long-term chronic post-operative inflammation CME. So let me just ask you here, Dan, what is your post-operative routine as far as a normal membrane peel, mm -hmm. let's say, uh, or a diabetic tractional retinal detachment? How do you manage those patients sure. just straight out of the gate? So if they have the appropriate insurance, as I did today, I did four cases, three out of four uh, post-op patients uh, received intracanicular uh, dextens at the end of the case. Uh, those patients will be seen tomorrow and they will get uh, their topical antibiotic for four times a day for a week. And usually I do topical uh, steroids such as um, uh, the uh, Durazol uh, generic equivalent uh, four times a day for two weeks and then twice a day for two weeks. If I give a patient extends, I'll just, I'll give them basically a topical antibiotic and their topical steroid four times a day for one week and then stop everything. And I've, I've had a good results with the extends. And I had a, a one patient I did a vitrectomy for floaters, one patient who I did a membrane peel on, and one patient who had an extremely complex retinal detachment that I use PFO and gas and uh, membrane peels at the end. And I used extends for all those patients, and uh, I've, I've had great results with all of them. Sometimes you have to up the steroid in the more complicated cases. This patient who had a recurrent attachment, had maybe four or five surgeries at this point. She's more likely to be, uh, you know, have more inflammation. I don't hesitate to up the topical steroid. I still give topical steroids to everybody, regardless of the Dextenza. I just feel like it's better for the patient to have it and maybe not have immediate pain or more inflammation, especially if um, I'm having somebody, other, another colleague see the patient day one, they don't necessarily know if it's if it's a lack of communication that it extends at one end, it's hard to see. Uh, there might be too many questions and I don't want to overwhelm anybody, whether it be the patient or my doctor is helping me out. Wow, really aggressive with the steroids, Dan. Do you operate at a surgery center or in a hospital? I operate at three different surgery centers. And, and with the Dextenza being placed at the time of surgery, is that considered a pass-through or how is that? Uh, it still has uh, the appropriate status where it's reimbursed separately uh, because it, re it was shown in the clinical trials to reduce pain, whereas unfortunately DexEQ did not test for that. So uh, the Dextenza folks uh, at Oculus Therapeutics were very, very smart and were able, because of the whole opioid crisis, were to say, hey, pain management is key. We should be allowed to keep this pass-through pass status. And sure enough, the FDA approved that, whereas DexEQ lost it because they couldn't say that about their you know, pain reduction. So I think that's really important to bear in mind is pain and, and, and signs and symptoms of inflammation that you're treating. And Lisa, for you, uh, hospital or surgery center at Beaumont? So most time it's hospital. I tend to get the more complex uh, diabetics and detachments and stuff like that. So they require longer or they're just not well enough to be uh, done in a surgical center. I have that option, um, which sometimes I'll do my floaterectomies there. But for the most part, uh, just because of what I like to do, I usually end up in the hospital. <laughs> and, and what do you use for your post-operative management just in a routine case? Yeah. So honestly, for me, routine, um, I just want to make it as easy as possible. I like the Dextenza. I didn't ever even thought of that as an option. I just was like, I kind of just want to get my stuff done. And, you know, sometimes after a long case, you're like, okay, let's move on here. But I do, you know, 
I do gentamicin for a week and atropine, you know, once a day for a week just to kind of prevent any sneaky eye because I always worry about that. And I just do prednisolone acetate. Like it's easy to get. Sometimes we had a shortage where we couldn't get the Durazole, um, couldn't get the Durazole generic for a while. And then, you know, sometimes when the gas bubble, the pressure goes up, I'm like, oh, I don't want to deal with it. I don't need to see it more often. I'm like, I'm going to see in the day, I'm going to see in a week. And I do keep people on prednisolone for a whole month. About uh, after a week, I go down to three times a day because I think it's so disheartening, not only for me, but for the patient to like, oh my gosh, I thought it was getting better. And you're showing me this picture. I stopped the drops three weeks ago. And now I feel like I'm just back to square one. And so I just honestly don't want to deal with that. I know it sounds selfish. It's also best for the patient knowing the inflammatory response is four to six weeks is when it's really kind of revs up there. So stopping it at like three weeks to me, I'm like, the immune system hasn't even had a, a response, a chance to respond to healing. And four to six weeks, that's when the deadly stuff is going to start. So I, I keep them on for a longer period of time and tell them it's worthwhile, knowing that they're probably only doing it twice a day, even though I want it to be three times a day. But it's uh, it works out really well. And I hate having to restart drops. I'd rather just keep it longer from right out of the gate and then kind of go from there. And, and before we go to break, I'll blow your minds here. You know, we're basically your kind of bread and butter retina practice um, here in Lexington, Kentucky, in a surgery center. We only use antibiotic ointment twice a day for a week no steroids at all. And uh, we actually looked and presented a couple of years ago an Arvo poster looking at rates of CME before and after we had done that. And it was fairly equivalent as far as that goes between using atropine and steroid drops and antibiotic ointment versus just antibiotic ointment twice a day for a week. And seemingly that's got the job done for most of our patients. But we do run into some of those patients that have recalcitrant, tougher to treat uh, CME after surgery. And we will get to that right after this break, learning a lot of stuff from Lisa and Dan. Stay with us after this break, and we will come back and talk about that patient that comes back with worsening edema that we need to take it to the next level. This editorially independent episode of New Retina Radio is supported by Alamera, a global pharmaceutical company whose mission is to be invaluable to patients, physicians, and partners concerned with retinal health and maintaining better vision longer. Alamera, we see more together. Welcome back to New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation, a New Retina Radio miniseries. Now we're going to examine kind of that classic patient that I think we've all faced in the retinal world, that patient that has come in after surgery, maybe three, four months later, and they've developed this macular edema. And this is tougher to treat macular edema than your typical post-operative cataract macular edema. Uh, Lisa, you know, let's say you've tried drops um, and uh, the patient's just not, you know, responding. What, what do you go to next? What, what's your thought process? So, you know, if I feel like it's more anterior source, then I will probably go to just the old-fashioned subtenons Kenalog injection, knowing that uh, make sure the nerve is okay. And if there's a spike, uh, because, you know, it's not as controllable, um, that that might be an, an issue. Or, uh, I, you know, Zypir is, is nice. It's a little bit, there is definitely a learning curve to it. It's not like subtenons, which we all kind of like lickety split or intravitreal injections. So there's a little learning curve to it. But when it comes to patients who have the CME, and if it seems more anterior, the source, I, I got to tell you, I've been, I've been pretty impressed with it. Um, and again, the pressure is much more manageable, much more um, predictable 
is I guess the best word for it on that aspect. If it is, seems like it's a little more from a posterior source, um, I gotta tell you, I am happy to use Ozodex or Uteek. I'll start with an Ozodex and if it seems like they need one or two, I'm talking to them about Uteek. And I know it's like, well, why, if it's only been three months, why are you already thinking that? And it's like, well, because this person's already gonna be upset and you need to have that next thought in your mind, not only because you wanna make sure you can offer to the patient, but you know, the fact that I had to already think, okay, I might be thinking Uteek. I'm going, to, I'm going to have you fill out this paperwork now because it might take four to six weeks for me to get approval. And if I get approval, we got to know what kind of assistance you need. And so I always kind of have that in mind, not only for patient care, but um, unfortunately, it's a game we have to play to uh, get things on board with the insurance. You know, Lisa, it was really, uh, this is really when the, the switch flipped for me as far as long-term therapies like a UTIC was realizing that this post-operative CME is an infl- at, its, at its essence an inflammatory condition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, some of my partners have asked, well, you know, how do you justify using a, an Ozodex because it, the label isn't for post-op CME? But I got to tell you, you know, if there is edema afterwards, um, whether you have an FA or not, you know it's an inflammatory source. And if you feel more comfortable, sometimes what I'll do is I'll do a focus workup. I don't want to waste money or patient resources. You know, I, I don't want to do that aspect. But if it seemed like it's persistent and then maybe surgery was a little, I thought it was a little more routine than I thought, and but they still have this persistent. I don't think it's a bad idea to do a quick focus workup. Hey, you know, rashes, joint issues, you know, it doesn't take much longer. Get that stuff going. And then again, for me, I do think it is a justifiable saying as a posterior uveitis. And everyone hates that word uveitis. Oh my gosh, holy crap, Ola, send it out, send it out. But no, it doesn't have to be like that. It just, you'll do the workup, make sure you're really not missing anything else and then proceed with an Ozodex from there. I just think there was a nice study just for anterior uveitis, uh, which showed that patients who uh, only risk factor was being African-American, they would be on drops for a year. And after drops for a year, they all did very well. And it's just, sometimes we think, we think that if it's not gone in three months that, well, why would we wait longer? It just it really is, the immune system is very annoying, quick to react, slow to, re, to, to calm down. So I, I do agree that we need to be more proactive with those long-term therapies. And, and Dan, we had talked to break about Zypir, the supercoroidal triamcinolone injection, very novel delivery technique. What's been your experience with Zypir in, in patients with post-operative CME? I find it uh, actually pretty helpful for patients and it's kind of become my go-to for those patients who also have secondary glaucoma that I'm, I feel is higher risk. A lot of these patients, you know, it's a rock and a hard place and they're often being co-managed by one of my glaucoma colleagues. Uh, I've already received a tube or a shunt or they're planning to do such or even a diode. And so you really have to take that into account when you're managing the risk to benefits. Nevertheless, I feel that the Zypir safety data as reported in Peachtree and the subsequent Magnolia trials showed that it was less likely compared to, you know, standard of care to uh, increase the intraocular pressure more so than, say, the other options. Uh, in the Huron trial with Ozardex, it was about 30 to 35 percent of patients usually noticed an IOP spike around week five to six. Uh, with Uteek, it was a little less than that. Uh, Fluencinolone zero point one eight um, trials. It was it was still it was still more than the Zypir. That's not directly comparable, but I think those three options have been kind of my my go to. Uh, those are the three main arrows in my quiver of anti-inflammatory steroids: Ozardex, Uteek, and Zypir. You know, uh, in my training and. Um, 
I think Lisa and I are in the same class, actually. Uh, you know, we had we had, uh, we had Perry Bulbar, our uh, Subtenons catalog, and and that's still great. Some people still use it. I rarely use it. I just feel like there's a lot of not necessarily challenges. I mean, you could risk low perforation. Nobody likes that. But it, you know, uh, the main thing is it's just unpredictable. The dose mm -hmm. is a little unpredictable. You still get the side effects of you know intraocular pressure rise. You can't really control. You can't take it out if the intraocular pressure goes up. Um, and so, you know, the, the black box warning for that is now elim effectively eliminated intravitreal non-preserved, excuse me, preservative, a positive preservative catalog from, uh, you know, our, as an option because of this pseudoendophthalmitis. And so we were kind of uh, happy to receive Alcon's triescence back in, what was it, 2006. And now there's this national shortage that doesn't look like it's ever going away. And I haven't used triescence in almost two years now. And so nobody in my practice has been able to get it. And so really, um, I think that the those three options I told you about the Ozodex, the Utique, and the Zypier are really going to be the kind of on on label uh, options that we go to most for our kind of chronic postoperative uh, inflammation, especially when it's associated with macular edema. And Dan, how do you tier those? So a lot of the time I have to, I mean, we're all, we, we can't get around this issue of what the type of insurance the patient has. Unfortunately, all of those products, because they're on label for the uh, post-operative, or I should say uh, posterior uveitis or posterior cyclitis, there's a few different terminologies that are used. And many times you have to code it as systole macular edema as number one, and then posterior cyclitis is number two. Um, I, I use, I have the patients fill out those patient assistance programs, sometimes all three of all three companies worth, and I submit them all. And many times I'll have something in mind, depending on their relative risk factors, like more risk for glaucoma. Okay, let's try Zypir. Um, you know, more of a go-to, let's try a, let's try this like first line, let's try Ozerdex. If I've already had an Ozerdex or two and it's still recurring, especially before like the 90 day mark, I'm, I'm thinking Utique and I've had great experience and, and, uh, with, with all those products. And, uh, I think, um, Zypira had the most insurance difficulty with at the moment. It's the newest products and so no surprise, but I think we all have very effective, uh, on-label treatment options. Um, and, Hopefully, although although relatively expensive per unit compared to some of our other intravitreal treatments for, say, other diseases like anti-VEGF, I think if you look at it from a time uh, standpoint, it's still relatively inexpensive. And I have a lot of patients who are willing to pay out of pocket when need be, depending on their insurance, you know, co-pays and whatnot, uh, to get rid of this situation. Because it's like night and day after you inject an intravitreal steroid compared to, you know, what they might have been on with drops for a long period of time. Yeah, you're 100% right. We have options. And I think the key is, is realizing that this is a post-operative inflammatory, a uveitic condition. Lisa, you brought up something very specific at the break, and that was uh, secondary IOLs. Is there anything different we need to consider in patients like that? We were kind of talking about that before, the cataract surgery that already went bad, and there's no capsular support. So yes, that's my thing. Mostly scleral fixated lenses. I really don't like to touch the iris if I don't have to. Um, but those are not candidates for any kind of implant. So unless you're going to do a retisert on them, which is surgically, uh, you know, sewn in, um, you take an Ozodex, you risk migration. And it's on the box that says if the posterior capsule is violated, except for YAG, that this is not indicated for those patients. And those are the patients that need it. Um, so I know CC Lynn, actually, who's here at Kreisky down the street, has done one or two where he has actually sewn in a UTIC. Um, um, and I thought that was a really interesting what he had done. I think one of them actually he did it and it migrated. It was not, uh, you know, Zanyol sometimes do that. 
and he didn't want to waste the $9,000. So he, he sewed it in and he has actually presented that, which is wonderful. But otherwise, again, without that capsule, you take an Ozodex, you're not going to risk then the cornea going bad. So that's why Zypier was a really good choice for me from that aspect, because of course, there's always an issue with pressures after those. So I, again, I agree with Dan that unpredictability of the subtenons injection, even though that's what it used to be, it just, I don't like that when you have something that's a little more reliable when it comes to whether you're going to have a pressure issue. Um, so those are the patients that unfortunately Zypier is really the best option because again, you worry about migration. Fantastic. One pearl you would give to anyone who's struggling to manage these patients. Lisa? One pearl to give. Um, um, I guess it's this hard part. It's easy for us to say, but be persistent. Um, but at the same time, be willing to do the next step. Don't, um, if you're like, oh, this should have worked and it didn't. Okay, it didn't go the next step. You need something longer. Don't perseverate on it because you're going to get annoyed and the patient's going to annoy. So just be persistent and be willing to move on. And Dan? Um, yeah, just a, I guess sort of a tangent from that is post-operative inflammation is posterior uveitis and it's often associated with cystoimmacular edema. And whether you term it as chronic post-operative cystoimmacular edema or the kind of classic following cataract surgery, Irvine gas, it's all an pro-inflammatory disease that's very effectively treated by steroids. And so you can't just keep beating around the bush with topicals. If it's not working, it's obvious. Sure, you could refer them out, but this is this is bread and butter retina. You shouldn't have to refer out this to your like uveitis colleague who's like dealing with their 15th serpiginous case right <laughs> at the very moment. I mean, if, if you, you don't have to dabble in immunotherapy, you can inject the steroid. It's actually very easy. It's covered. Uh, you might have felt some paperwork. It might take a little while. Your billing folks might have to be educated, but it's very effective. I, I, as a UVI specialist who sometimes gets these patients, people are like, well, don't you, aren't you okay that they're easy? I'm like, no, they're so high maintenance because they have multifocal lenses and they have a little edema. I'm like, that's it. You know what? Hold still. We're putting the Zypier in. If someone else can just deal with it. And I, I'm happy to deal with my 15 serpiginous birdshot patients, patients. I'm okay with that. You know, I, cause they are grateful. These high maintenance one. I'm like, gosh, can someone just put an injection in here? I don't need to deal with this. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you, our two most valuable resources is a retina specialist, neuro-ophthalmology, and uveitis specialist. <laughs> like you got, don't send them anything that is not actually really serious stuff. Listen, Lisa, Dan, I want to thank you for joining me on the new Retina Radio miniseries, New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation. You've been educational and entertaining. We have two more episodes coming out, so stay subscribed to New Retina Radio so that these episodes automatically appear in your podcast feed. For now, my name is John Kitchens. Thanks for joining us.